Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are there really haunted lighthouses? What about ghost ships? Is there any progress on identifying those weird booms that seem to come from the sky? Hello and welcome to the 787th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. This is our 11th year on the air. I'm Ben. And those brainy and bosun questions, I was trying to say bosun-esque questions, came from my co-host <laughs> and partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. And okay. uh, today we bring you an open line show uh, to answer your questions on many paranormal subjects. And uh, the number is 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. You can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or you can message us on Facebook as well. Uh, then maybe you should leave the nautical terms to me. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. Okay. You were you were in in the Coast Guard. Well, anyway, uh, and yeah, hence the interest in lighthouses. Uh, we're joined today by our indispensable guest co-host Shane Searway. A warm hello to all the great listeners. Okay, let's do it then. All right. All right. Well, let's just jump right into it. I <coughs> okay. Now we're going to start with uh, we have our, our uh, very faithful listener Peter from. Columbia, South America, who has written in about uh, several questions uh, that are kind of basic. Um, well, in bold there, Ben. We would say we would say basic, but yeah. it's it, all, always the shorter questions always lead to the hour. Well, people don't ask about a lot of these basic things on this show because they're, no. they're you know. But he uh, he Peter writes to us, Paul and crew. Can you share any interesting stories about light, lighthouses or ghost ships? Does this phenomena continue to the present? Okay, so there are two of our intro questions right there. Um, Shane, uh, did you want to start on that one? No, I'll let you start. Since you're in the oh, Coast right. Guard, you have yeah, you probably, <laughs> right, you've right. been on the water more. All right. Well, it's been a long time since the Coast Guard uh, staffed lighthouses with personnel. They've all been uh, automated for some years now. However, I did know the... Um, or I spoke at least uh, not in acquaintance with the uh, the last lighthouse keeper... At uh, the the Cape Netic light station in York, Maine, otherwise known around here at least as the Nubble Light, uh, it's probably the fo- most photographed or one of the most photographed lighthouses in the country because it's so close to shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a park, and you can. I was Ben's mom and I were there just uh, last fall. We just took a drive up for the day. Uh, and we, you, you can go in, and it's right there. I mean, it's beautiful. You can see mm-hmm. it. Uh, there, it has a long and interesting history, and it is supposedly haunted. Okay, uh, now the the last keeper was a Coast Guard uh, non commissioned officer who uh, ran the station, and they're usually uh, machinist mates, uh, which means that they are mechanics and can keep the the light because it's a very important, especially the coast of Maine. It's very rocky, and what the lighthouse's purpose is is to warn ships away from the rocks, and there are lots and lots of fishing. Boats are big fishing fleet out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and all this, and other areas, and uh, so that that's to protect them. So uh, they have since been automated. But he was the last keeper there, and he said that uh, they they would see uh, a woman from time to time, you know, transparent, this sort of thing. Uh, nothing really scary. Uh, nothing that really scared. He had one child whom he used to put in a, in a bucket. Not a bucket, but you've you both been there. You know, they have like a huge cable that goes from the mainland to uh, near the boat near the boathouse on, on the little island where the lighthouse is, and uh, the supplies w- could be um, 
uh, wheeled back and forth on this like this this big wooden box that hangs from like this cable. Okay, and they actually used to put. Uh, the, the keepers uh, tradition would put their children in this thing and wheel them over to pick up the school bus on the mainland, you know. And it's maybe, what would you say, maybe 200 feet, yeah, if that. And um, it's, um, I, I wouldn't try and walk it, but when at low tide, supposedly, you can, you know, go over there, but they don't let you do that. So in any case, uh, this supposedly was a haunted lighthouse. And, of course, the question is why. Uh, one of the things that might come to mind, um, uh, and also also uh, within sight of the Cape Natick Light Station is the Boone Island Light, which is in uh, on New Hampshire territory, but it's way the heck out. It's, like I believe, 12 miles out. But on a clear day, you can see it because the, uh, the, the beacon, the lighthouse itself is very tall. All right. Uh, so, and there's another one out there as well. So the Boone Island Light is supposedly haunted as well by one of the old keepers. Okay. So, I mean, what does this mean? All right. So everybody assumes, well, it's the spirit of the old keeper, the spirit of the wife of the Coast Guard guy who was there in 1920 or something. Well, maybe, but we kind of doubt that. We think it's, um, the proximity of water is very interesting. Mm-hmm. We very often will find, I don't know if you, either of you want to say anything about that, but water is, is very, very present in many paranormal cases. You were with me, this is before you even thought of getting involved here, Ben, back in the 90s, I think, uh, or maybe the, the early 2000s, when uh, Waterman, um, was it Waterman Lake in uh, Rhode Island here? Yes. Or, or yeah, out, out by that area, and there was a house right next to it, was pretty much out on a little peninsula, surrounded by water, and this lot of stuff was happening there that didn't seem to be really kind of a flap area sort of thing. Yeah, they, they described seeing, what, 25 or 26 different apparitions over two years? And, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, some just once, but a lot of, uh, quite a few of them, like, yeah. multiple times. And we had some interesting photos out there. I mean, you did, anyway. Yeah. So uh, the presence of water is often uh, associated with paranormal phenomena. And why? Because water is a conductor, unless it's distilled, is a conductor of uh, electromagnetic energy, and we believe that there's some relationship between that and paranormal phenomena. Uh, brains, if you will, the, the boundaries between worlds. So I think that certainly in areas where the lighthouses are, which are, um, I mean, at, at worst they're on peninsulas and surrounded out of water by three sides instead of four sides, uh, this is going to be a factor. Uh, I've never really heard of any, you know, and people in the Coast Guard knew I was into this stuff. Um, and uh, people would come to me, and people took it very seriously. Uh, and, and the Coast Guard is is um, a very a varied organization, especially today when there's a lot of uh, anti-submarine warfare responsibility, anti-smuggling, anti-drug, uh, mi- a lot of military uh, involvement in the, even in the Middle East. But uh, the, uh, there's also the aids to navigation. Coast Guard does everything. Uh, firefighting and uh, the aids to navigation's team will maintain buoys and the lighthouses today. But nobody really lives at the lighthouses. Uh, there have been reports, however, now, now I should qualify that by saying that uh, the, the jurisdiction over the houses next to the towers, the beacons, are um, very often rented out by local jurisdictions. For example, the house at the Nubble Light in Maine uh, is owned, I believe, by the, uh, not, not necessarily, the t- I can't remember, it was the town of York or an organization like the Historical Society or some, some group like that that, main, that uh, maintains it and raises money to do that because the, uh, they have some deal with the Coast Guard that, that they won't, you know, the Coast Guard doesn't have to pay for the house anymore. Hmm. So um, the uh, the buoy tender will arrive and take care of the light, but the town is responsible for the house. And, and uh, the, I know on Boone Island, you can rent the house for vacation. All right? Now, I know there's not much to do out there, 
you know, fishing, of course. And I'm not even sure how you get out there anymore. But uh, <laughs> uh, there is supposedly that some of the tourists have had supposedly uh, experiences uh, of that kind. But so uh, the answer to Peter is yes. Uh, haunted lighthouses apparently are quite uh, real. Uh, the reasons for them may be more multiversal than supernatural, in our opinion. And uh, Shane, if you have any thoughts, were the was the Boone one, or there, there was one that's way out? You have to take a boat to it. I don't know if it's Boone or somewhere else. If it's off Massachusetts or whatever, where. Uh, there was a husband and wife running the, the lighthouse way back, and um, they they housed a, a sailor that was going through, and um, the, his wife, the keeper's wife, took off with the sailor, and he jumped. Actually, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, he jumped and landed on the block, um, you know, block uh, patio or whatever, the, the, the base, uh, yeah. and, and died, you know. And so um, that place is supposed to be haunted. It's been on TV and stuff and yeah. everything. But I find, you know, any dwelling or any um, environment that has emotionally, dramatically charged events, you know, seem to have these bleed-overs, you know. Yeah, well, one of the things uh, I think we should be aware of is that there are times, and I've actually found this, in a number of cases where the phenomena are well known, but the um, the, the story is kind of made up to accommodate the phenomena. Yes. You know, you know, you know what I mean. Uh, like there was one that says that there's a headless uh, woman that w- walks around the lighthouse. Um, yeah. I mean, I just yeah, I'd find that a little disconcerting. She was de- decapitated by pirates, and now the story is that she roams around without her head. And I yeah. I find that to be a story probably. Yeah, right. Or or should, that should be more at Hogwarts. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's they're, they're very interesting stories. Um, it, it, it was a very lonely life. As a matter of fact, yes. interestingly enough, um, I wish you'd known your grandfather Eno. Mm-hmm. You didn't know your grandfather Blackman either. But uh, my father was uh, inter- he was in the navy, but he had been interested later in life, in, in, uh, when he was still young enough to do so, joining the Coast Guard and becoming a lighthouse keeper. And you know, you, you can't choose your own duty. You know, he would have to be. Uh, he was an electrician's made in the navy. But anyway, um, he was interested uh, in, in ghosts and stuff, and that's how I got my interest. Really, oh, wow. yeah. So um, th- that's pretty much uh, there. It is as far as ghost ships are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I actually have, have run into, I suppose, one from the actual Coast Guard records in Boston when I was serving at uh, the District One headquarters there. Um, in the public affairs office, there was a, uh, a file of missing vessels. Mostly it was newspaper clippings and stuff. And it wasn't classified or anything. And I actually put a chapter in my 1998 book, Faces at the Window, on New England's disappearing ships. And all this stuff came right out of Coast Guard records. Uh, one of this, and now a disappearing ship is not the same thing as a, uh, you know, as a ship that, that is a ghost ship, so, so called. Right, yeah. But, uh, the, the case of the Gulf Stream, in the early 1960s, was very interesting. The Gulf Stream was a research vessel, uh, which I was uh, owned um, with by the Scripps Institute of Technology in California, and they were somehow in Maine, uh, in the Portland or Casco Bay, that that vicinity, where the other lighthouse that's the most photographed, the Portland Headlight or the Portland Headlight, as people call it there. <laughs> Uh, they, there was a very large research vessel uh, full of scientists and crew, and it uh, left port. Uh, it was um, never seen again, depending on whom you talk to. Uh, the Coast Guard, of course, has uh, maritime courts and, and will have inquiries into these incidents. Uh, there was no um, distress call from the vessel. Uh, a fellow named Leland Bugby, who was a Coast Guard NCO who was running the uh, radio 
station at Bay South Portland uh, did hear what he believed was a communication from the Gulf Stream. It was very um, clear, but it was uh, routine, as if they were checking in to uh, their their base in Portland. And uh, there was, but the, the interesting part was a few days later, um, after the ship had been reported missing, uh, several, um, I believe there were lobstermen or commercial fishermen of some kind, saw the vessel leaving Casco Bay when it was supposedly out somewhere in the Gulf of Maine and had been, you know, missing. And uh, they had not heard that it was missing and just didn't pay much attention to it, but they reported to the Coast Guard later that they had seen it leaving. And they said, it was the Gulf Stream. We knew nothing. uh, There's no other vessel around here that even looks like it, especially in that time of year, which was pretty much uh, early winter. So um, the... um, I guess one or two uh, PFDs, uh, life jackets, were found from the Gulf Stream. Just a few things, but nothing major was found, and they never really figured out what what it was about. So in a way, I guess you could call that a ghost ship with which I had a little bit of uh, contact myself. Hmm. So, But supposedly the uh, famous Flying Dutchman and things of this kind. Um, Again, it's easily explained by um, the multiverse idea that these vessels are always there, uh, things, all things that are possible are taking place, and if the laws of physics are good enough, are, the, are similar enough, they, they will uh, become visible in our world, and we think that they're spirits, and they're just the real vessels, and maybe they're seeing us the same way. So, well, that's also something we kind of have to keep in mind about the world's oceans that they are gigantic. Yes. Oh, you know, yes. They, they, there's, there's so much that could happen. <laughs> well, it's often been said that we know more about outer space and uh, our fellow planets here than we do about our own oceans. Uh, one of the, the biggest shockaroos in scientific history was in the 1970s when they discovered the volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean. And I read—I uh, was rereading an old book the other day by uh, a man I never knew, but he has one of the great acknowledgments, the first acknowledgment in my book, Turning Home, God, Ghost, and Human Destiny, and that's Dr. Dan Q. Posen of DePaul University, who uh, had, was, had a wonderful gift Albert Einstein told him he had a wonderful gift of bringing science education to children, and I was one of the children. Uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the early 1960s, I'd, I'd come home from school, you know, and I'd turn on the TV, because the old National Educational Television Network, you know, the, the remote ancestor of uh, public TV, uh, had um, a, a show called What's New, and Dr. Posen was on this, and, uh, and he... Uh, uh, would talk about the, the planets and things of this kind, and uh, he would say, because you know, all life on Earth is powered by the sun. Well, that turned out not to be true when they, they discovered these volcanic vents. Uh, whole new forms of life were discovered around that. They're powered by um, uh, sulfur dioxide, <laughs> which is about as poisonous as you can get when it comes to our, our form of life. Mm-hmm. So here we are on our own planet discovering a whole alien, bunch of alien species without even having to leave. So that's under the sea, you know, as the well, the crab and little mermaid would sing. But yeah. um, but nevertheless, we, we seem to, and yet we're out, you know, we're mapping Pluto and all the different moons that we didn't know were there and all stuff with, with probes, and we know less about uh, what's going on under the sea. So that's a long comment on your, your very apt statement, Ben. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did in the Coast Guard, I was down around um, the uh, what is known as the Bermuda Triangle, and I've mentioned this before, I think, on the air, but we were <clears throat> down uh, in, in the wake of the Grenada 
Operation Urgent Fury in 1984, because the grenade invasion was late 83, early 84, we were down there kind of checking things out, keeping an eye on the Cubans, stuff like that. And uh, there was a um, uh, an incident on the bridge. I was on the bridge of the, of the, the cutter. This is one of the larger cutters people use, you don't see. Uh, 378, as we call it, 378 feet long, the, the chase. And I was on the bridge, and uh, all of a sudden the quartermaster, who's like the navigator, said, oh, you know, he, some some expression I'd rather not repeat on the air, but uh, there's a huge, you know, military grade compass going around in circles. And everybody's, uh, you know, and I was kind of a newbie down there. So, but the captain, who had lots of experience, Captain John Lockwood, uh, turned and, and he said, uh, "Don't worry about it. I'll end in a minute or two, you know." And so, uh, I mean, it was a little bit of concerning. Here's a U.S. warship uh, with no navigation for a minute or two. That's not good. But uh, it did, and uh, apparently that's the sort of thing. There are magnetic anomalies down there anyway. Uh, and I heard a lot of strange stuff, and, and uh, I don't want to get into that here. But, yeah, I, I think ghost ships um, uh, certainly do occur. I've heard of a lot, and, and I suppose in a way I've had a kind of indirect contact with one. So I hope that answers your question, Peter. <laughs> so I'd like to add, um, yeah. I've never experienced a, a ghost ship or whatever, but, you know, you did a good job ex- explaining, the, you know, as to how that could happen and, and whatever the likelihood. But um, but one thing that I think a lot of listeners probably can relate to, that which is similar to the ghost ship, is the ghost car. Like, you ever been driving down a road and there's somebody on your rear yes. end mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're not there anymore and there's yeah. no place for them who have gone? Absolutely right. That's yeah. happened to me so many times. Yeah, it's happened well, to me too, actually. Yeah. Now that I think about it, it's just, <laughs> You just dismiss it. Ah, it's just well, I'm more, I'm more ghost ships than ghost cars, but, but <laughs> yeah, but still, yeah, we've all had that. I mean, you walk down a crowded street in Boston or Providence or L.A. or you know, wherever you happen to be, and you wonder how many of those people, how many are actually there, right? Yeah, or how many are what they appear to be, right? I mean, it sounds goofy, but you know, when you look at some of the stuff we we run into, I mean, that's that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good. You don't point. even think about it half the time. You know, I think there's there's some sort of mystery surrounding the sea because we, there is so little that we know about it that it's it's easy for tales to get made up about it. Plus, you know, there's all sorts of old sailor stories about mm. monsters and things like that. Yeah, you know? and I've I, talked to some sailors who told me some. Oh yeah. Plus, I mean, you know, you're out, you're on these long voyages for months at a time, and you know, yeah, you start getting a little goofy. Yeah, you if, get if, you, if you haven't been in port, you know. For, yeah, exactly. Because you're just you stranded middle of nowhere, just water for miles. <laughs> yeah, you're going and going, and you know, I mean, right? The sea is a big place, and you know, the Coast Guard, you're always doing something interesting. Where, you know, making boardings and stuff, and you know, and, uh, hopefully not getting shot at. But you know, we, we were, you know, you're in harm's way. But uh, you know, you can still have a week or two or three where nothing is happening. It got so boring on our ship that, that um, the the uh, the corpsman, as you could let, he was kind of like a, a medically trained guy who would run the sick bay, uh, would um, uh, the, the the flying fish would come and, and like sometimes they would fly too high and they land on the deck and they couldn't get <laughs> off. So, and they actually do look look like birds, kind of fly, and, and they, they jump out of the water to get away from like sharks and stuff, barracudas, and sometimes they land on the deck. So you know, we had a, a closed circuit TV. And, you know, the captain would give announcements of the day or whatever was going on. And uh, the, the the corpsman would come on and he, he was trying to revive the uh, the flying fish. Mm. He said, this is not, I, I don't have a lot of hope for this and everything. And we were all like, you know, I mean, we, yeah, cabin fever, you know. But, you know, I talked to any any uh, sailor, any deep water sailor, and you, that's going to happen. Didn't Christopher Columbus log um, seeing lights going in and out of the ocean? Yes. Yes. Yes, he did. Uh yeah, that was an interesting voyage too. Mm. Um, there were uh, strange lights in the sky and coming in and out of the water. 
Uh, of course, the thing is that you're, in that latitude, you're running into a lot of phosphorescence in the water too. Sure, yeah. So you, you know, you're looking down. It, we used to go up on, on the um, uh, like go off on the fantail at night, the, the rear of the ship, and this, it was fun to look down and watch the, because the props would stir up all this phosphorescence and it would be all this light in the water. Oh, wow. and it was uh, you know, people from New England usually you don't you never see that kind of thing. You just have no, to go down it's usually there. like plankton and stuff, right? Because they yeah, have, plankton they too. Have, yeah, what's it yeah. called? Bio, bioluminescence. bioluminescence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I think it's interesting because there's all sorts of weird stuff that, like, if you look back through like you know various logs and historical documents, you know they're talking about you know seeing these giant monsters. I remember there was there was one description of a manatee, but it was referred to as a mermaid. Yeah. Then I was like, oh, that's a really fat mermaid. <laughs> well, the guitar fish actually looks, if you see it from the bottom, looks like, from a distance, it's got eyes and a mouth. There's a picture of it in our book, um, our 2017 book, Behind the Paranormal 2. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because it's, I guess it kind of comes down to the thing that we, we pretty much talk about it. Every, every open line is perspective. Right. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> we should just call them perspective shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah because, you know, I mean, and, and, we're, and we're having this lengthy conversation about the, the mysterious deep blue sea because uh, there are many explanations for weird things that happen and they might not be paranormal. And things that we might not know about yet. Things you might not know about yet. Because right. we only just discovered, you know, Architeuthis, you know, the giant squid, like, yeah. you know, really only within the last, what, 15, 20 years? Yeah. And before that, you know, it, I think it's hilarious, hilarious that, like, you know, biologists, they'll just deny something exists, like, people have taken pictures of it, like, ah, oh, it's not a real thing, and then eventually they'll find it themselves, like, oh, yeah, I guess it is real. Well, a bunch of Japanese sailors and researchers actually got, finally got a video of it. And so, um, you know, that was only like I think two years ago. So. Yeah. Plus, that, then they've been found in like you know the stomachs of whales and stuff. Oh, sure. Cause, yeah. Because they just they're they're just so deep yeah. down. The sea of Cortez is full of them down in Mexico. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> well, let's move on to another question it's from Richard in San Francisco. Another famous listener and good question. Indeed. So Richard writes to us: Is it possible that the unexplained booms that have started since 2011 are related to underground tunneling? Um, I'm not apt in in sound travel, but I do know that uh, when a subsonic speed jet uh, passes over, uh, you know, or overhead, I should say, I hear it, feel it, and then see it. Um, it could be that the underground mining, uh, they're mining underground with some sonic devices, generating an overhead boom that actually comes from deep underground. Uh, I've looked at locations of the booming occurrences and shocked to see how uh, full the map of the United States is of the events. Mm. Um, I've I've heard that there is a metallic grinding sound that sometimes accompanies these events. Yes. Thoughts? Shane, you want to take this one? Yeah, it, I mean, you can go on YouTube, and I'm sure there's some fake ones out there, but there's the, that metallic grinding sound all around the world. People are recording these things, and, and very, very believable and, and legit. And um, and I've heard the booms myself, and it's, it's very hard to tell where they're coming from. And what's interesting, though, is in areas where this seems to be happening a lot, it was happening quite a bit a few years ago in North Carolina off the seacoast, or people on the seacoast would hear it a lot. They couldn't tell it was coming from the ocean. Other times they would hear the booms, they would look out, and there would be like orange UFOs that are appearing on the horizon. Um, but they said you know, their house would shake. It, it sounded like it was coming from under the ground. But, so I went on and I looked for seismic activity when these were being reported and there was nothing at all. So there was no underground, you know, plates shifting or anything like that. Um, so it, if it was something significant underground, which I think is the, the most likely 
scenario, but um, but there's no measurement. Um, there's nothing's being recorded as far as you know. A lot of the cases, anyways. But I've heard. I mean, I can't tell where they're coming from. But it. Are you hearing yourself? Oh, it just shook my house. Just uh, what it was. Like oh, you meant? I was right. I forgot about a few that. weeks ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were, and the TV was up too, surround sound, and boom, and the house shook. Wow. I asked, what, did you feel that? She, and she didn't actually feel the first one, but then the second one, she definitely did. And, um, but oh yeah, it's, it's, and there's people in our town that, hillbillies that like to blow up tannerite, you know, they shoot mm. large quantities of tannerite, but it's clear, clearly a way different, uh, sound oh. and feel. And, um, th- this was definitely, it was, it was bizarre, but, um, I've experienced it, yes, and, um, and I do believe, you know, we are definitely, there's, we have machines that can bore underneath the ground, like 20 foot diameter, you know, and just, just plow through the size of mountains and everything. We have that, and it's been around for a long time. I mean, at least the 70s, we've been able to do that with these giant machines. Um, so, and we know we're doing stuff underground. Other people suggest that, um, started with Phil Snyder, who came out and uh, said that there is wars going on underneath our ground, you know, you know military and aliens, um, or ex- extraterrestrial. So you never know. I mean, um, but you know, it could be something like that, something that strange. But but there's definitely something happening with these booms, and they're increasing. Yeah. Now, Ben, you're the sound expert. Well, oh, I am. Uh, okay. Well, we take our break. I didn't even notice the timer because I'm, I'm still planning my thoughts here. <coughs> okay. So let's just take our break. Oh, well, I have quick. some suggestions here too. But uh, let's take our break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 <coughs> AM and uh, 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our great guest co-host Shane Searway today. It's Open Lines. We'll be right back. Advertising on radio. There you go, folks. Anyway, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. And with it, we have our fascinating guest co-host, uh, one of our favorite guys in the world, Shane Searway, here today with us. Uh, and we're doing open lines. If you want to check in with us, you're welcome to call. It's 401-766-1240 from anywhere or paul at behindtheparanormal.com or you can message us on Facebook. So we're talking about we're answering a question from uh, Richard in San Francisco about the um, booms that are being heard pretty much all over the world. And uh, if you do look at a map, they're pretty much everywhere, you know. Mm. Now, there are a number of things these could be. All right. Uh, The one I worry about most is seismic. Mm -hmm. Now, some kind of, you know, plate tectonics and stuff. uh, Plates move, you know, even sometimes miles under the ground, and they can produce not only strange lights, uh, although just for a minute, but also the uh, sounds of this kind. 
the reason why I worry the reason I worry about it is because uh, the New Madrid fault in uh, pretty much the eastern part of the Midwest of the United States is extraordinarily dangerous. Okay, there was a major quake there. I believe it was 1835, and it it just it affected an enormous area. But there was a much there in those days. Uh, today, it would have dire effects uh, in St. Louis, uh, Memphis, even as far south as New Orleans, which has had enough trouble in the last 20 years as it is. Uh, and in eastern cities, even Charleston, uh, even perhaps as far north as New York and Boston. So, this is not good if it has anything to do with that. Uh, maybe it doesn't. Other possibilities include, as you pointed out, chain blasting or underground tunneling, uh, particularly near a fracking area. Now, the only thing with that is, I mean, people would know that that's going on when, unless it's some kind of secret. But what, if it's, it's extraordinarily expensive to use those machines, but they do exist and they, they can do that. Uh, sonic booms. Now, in the in the in the fifties, when the sound barrier was broken, back when I was a lad, uh, the the military aircraft that were built to exceed the speed of sound would create a boom when the air could no longer move out of the way of the aircraft, and there would be this boom. And you'd hear we used to hear it all the time. But now it's it's uh, illegal to uh, they're not allowed to do that over populated areas, which of course even it still happens sometimes, but sometimes you just can't avoid it. Uh, so that was a problem. So it possibly that, but they have a very uh, consistent sound, you know, uh, and some of these sounds don't sound anything like that. Um, it, a police or military training area, maybe there's some uh, even live fire access. You know, but you're not going to find that in southern New Hampshire or northern Rhode Island or any place around here. Um, and just because they seem to come from the sky doesn't mean they do. Ben, you're our resident sound expert with training in this. How would uh, How would that work? So uh, that's the thing. I've been I've been kind of toying with this sort of on and on and off whenever I, I have a chance to think about it, and it's it's interesting to think about <clears throat> because everyone's kind of gravitating towards the un- underground stuff. So if they're hearing this boom, whatever the the initial thing is is making the sound has to be incredibly powerful because. Think of it this way, right? So the lowest sound we can hear is 20 hertz <clears throat> it, on a good day. If your if your ears are not terrible, but by the you know by the time you're like you know 20, you, you can't hear 20 hertz anymore. So <laughs> because well, forget it for me then. Yeah, no, I I definitely can't either. But you can probably feel it. So the lowest perceptible sound that we can hear is roughly around 20 hertz, and it can travel at about 1300 feet per second, or th- yeah, 1300 miles per second. I'm sorry. Um, or is it feet? Let me double check that. I'm pretty sure it's feet. Yeah, it can travel 1,300 feet per second, and eventually it just sort of decays. So this boom, or the boom that people are that people are hearing, whatever that initial sound is, it has to travel through the ground, and then eventually turn into a big boom. So whatever it is, it's powerful enough to push through the ground because this the the initial like you know 1300 feet per second thing that's that's only that's on a a very clear day you know the weather has to be just right the air temperature is approximately 76 degrees like and that's so the so the you know everything can travel at that at that rate sometimes it can travel a little bit faster if it's you know a few degrees cooler or warmer but at that rate it, it that's that's how fast it travels and that there's nothing in its way, so just 
nothing at all, just air. With the ground in the way, that presents, you know, a really big issue because whatever that initial, you know, sound is from the source is, if it's some underground drilling device, if it's a battle, you know, it, it would have to be something like, like something nuclear generated probably that, you know, something with immense amounts of power that could, you know, have something audible on the surface. You know, the, the sensation of, of earthquakes and, and feel, feeling a boom, that makes more sense. Actually hearing something, though, if it's coming from underground, that's, that's concerning in a, in a couple of mm. different, for a couple of different reasons, and that would mean that whatever is, is going on under there is, is super powerful. I don't know much about plate tectonics, <clears throat> and if, if there is any sort of sound that's generated by them, but what I do know is that the ground is very thick, obviously. You know, um, so for some sort of frequencies to be passed through them, it, it would have to be very powerful for us to even hear anything at all, let alone a big boom. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, allergy season's kicking in. Speaking well, of yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's I think it's really really fascinating to think about because if the, if there is something audible, right? So because it is traveling along with the sound, it, who knows? Maybe maybe the sound originated, you know, maybe a f- few hours before. Or maybe like, you know, 10, 12 minutes before. If it takes that long to travel all the way up oh, there, yeah. that's yeah. something that's, that, that would, that's something that we have to, we have to t- think about. Because, you know, whenever you hear a plane overhead, typically the plane's already gone. But you're hearing it. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear the sound before the plane even gets there. Like, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sounds sound is a funky thing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because you know it, it could be you know we're hearing the sounds before something's even happening. Well, another phenomenon to which these sounds have been attributed, uh, at least some of them, is a tsunami-like waves breaking offshore. Now, I'm I don't know about that because you know tsunami waves when they're before they reach shore are not all that tall generally because that that's not always true, but uh, when you have a um, Water is extremely powerful. A lot of people don't realize. Oh yeah. When you have, um, it's thicker than air. I've been in a st- at least one storm at sea, and uh, the, it's amazing. And there is a lot of noise from the breaking waves, the breakers that, that are that are really huge. You know, like twenty and thirty feet high. Oh, I'm sorry, I got my physics wrong. Um, the thicker the surface, the faster the sound travels. There we go. Okay. All there right. we go. Sorry yeah. about that. That's well, why. That's why you know you can hear whales from far away. Right. Uh, they're also um, attributed to offshore methane burst, because a lot of these do appear to come from out to sea. Uh, disintegrated meteors, disintegrating meteors, which is uh, if you're within 30 miles of a meteor, it's breaking up. You can hear a, a, usually a sizzling sound. But, but fireballs high in the atmosphere can not only presumably start fires on ground. I happen to believe in the theory that the Chicago fire of, uh, of the 1870s was started by uh, a burst of a... Fireball, um, you know, above, just like a nuclear weapon, you know. So, um, stop trying to apologize for the cow. Yes, oh, yes, well, you know, I have a thing for cows. <laughs> uh, but then, then uh, in the desert, there are the booming sand dunes. That's something we might want to look into sometime. Um, and then, of course, the old multiverse theory, the cross brain sounds, B R A N E, you know, things coming in from other parallel realities where. Maybe there's a war going on. Maybe there is underground tunneling. I mean, you know, but it's not happening in our world. I mean, that's bizarre, but that that's, uh, in our experience, that's everyday stuff. I did hear a story from a relatively credible source that um, that the Soviets 
built a a tunnel between um, Afghanistan and uh, I don't remember which satellite Soviet state, but they built like a tunnel basically where they could just you know ship troops back and forth. Didn't do them any good. No, no, not at all. But you know, it was the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah, just didn't really think super far ahead. But anyway, they. Um, I have it on pretty good authority that 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 you know it's it's still there. Really? Oh yeah, that's you know, yeah. most most of the arms that that most of the like the Taliban have just came from that. I wouldn't have to worry about the mm. rain, I guess. No, but yeah. I what I'm, essentially what I'm trying to point out here is you know there's a precedent for just building underground tunnels. You know we've oh, seen yeah. we've seen you know time and time again many different you know high military forces trying trying to do something to that. Well, effect. underground bases are very common. In the I, military world. I think it's important to note and consider, as we talked about off-air, uh, before sonic booms, were, we were capable of doing that with aircraft, and uh, before we were able to bore underneath the ground and stuff like that, the earliest settlers, once they started moving westward, were hearing the Seneca guns, yep. and they named, like, cannon booms that they couldn't tell where it was coming from mm-hmm. um, near and around Lake Seneca um, in New York. And then also you brought up the point of the Native Americans on the East Coast. That yeah, would, the moodest noises in Connecticut. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's something to consider when... Important when, point. Yes. Yeah. Maybe it's something kind of like the Aurora Borealis, where yeah. like we didn't really know what it was until we just decided to study it one day. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe, well, maybe it's undiscovered science. That could be um, it, too. One of the points, too, uh, not to take up the whole show with this question, but it is interesting. We've got, we had a lot of questions about this, so, so we boiled it down to uh, what uh, Richard asked. Uh, the sounds are not all. They're not all. They're not all booms, really. Uh, there's some metallic. Some are almost musical. And they're creepy. They are very creepy. <laughs> well, one researcher actually um, uh, spliced a bunch of them together and said these are musical sounds that can be assembled into patterns. Now, hmm. I'm not competent to judge. I'd like to look at that a little more. Some are droning. Some are humming, like the Taos hum. It sounds like a truck idling. And sometimes it, it is a truck, I would think, idling, but not always. Uh, Taos after Taos, New Mexico. Uh, boomings, uh, loud and soft. Others sound very mechanical. Mm-hmm. You know, the one, there, I've heard some that have been in the, U- were recorded in the Ukraine. Very mechanical, almost like, like a fact, but there wasn't anything operating. Um, <clears throat> there, uh, another thing that crossed my mind that I didn't see any of the sources was the possible phenomenon of skip. As it's sometimes called. Uh, now, this is usually associated with radio waves. Uh, if our um, station manager is is listening, I'm sure he'll he'll cue me in on this, whether I'm right or wrong about this. <laughs> oh, later on. does that mean like you know uh, signals bouncing off of the ionosphere? Precisely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, whether it's a signal or whether it's just even just a sound, because uh, as Ben said, sound is very strange. It could be something happening, you know, far away at a real steel mill or something, and then the conditions are just just right that the uh, uh, form of skip might occur and it come, goes up and bounces down. I mean, I, that's something I think that might be possible. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, skies, uh, weather conditions are not always the same when these things occur. Um, sometimes they're overcast, sometimes they're clear. Uh, it, they, uh, animals usually are very frightened at these sounds. Um, some have been heard for generations, as you mentioned. You know, mm-hmm. natives uh, will, will report it. Um, sometimes there are other phenomena that occur uh, alongside these things, headaches, nausea, inability to sleep. Uh, one of the ones that we've had uh, sort of semi-direct contact with here on the show uh, is when we were on CBS, we broadcast uh, one of the cities we were in was Detroit, and people in that area, including Windsor, Ontario, Canada, across the river would hear 
the show and and called and or emailed and reported a lot of stra- uh, some strange sounds that were occurring in that vicinity. Um, and we were of the, we did some research. We we're of the opinion that there was an unused power plant on an island in the river on the American side, and uh, there, there were uh, fans that were with the wind would spit and they would create uh, infrasound ah. and uh but they could feel it the people on the canadian side could feel it in the ground uh the ground would shake a little not to the point of damage but enough that you could feel it and this sort of thing so so that is one possible explanation for those and uh at least from what we hear a lot of most listeners followed us to on here from uh cbs and uh we haven't heard much about that lately maybe it has calmed i've heard that it has calmed down somewhat so, again, there are many, many explanations for these things, but they are very, very creepy. You know, yes. uh, I've heard uh, people from a religious standpoint, the sort of millennialist, uh, sort of uh, fundamentalist kind of thing that, uh, you know, it's the trumpet of Gabriel. And some <laughs> of the bloody things do sound kind of like a trumpet. Like a trumpet, yeah. You know, although you might need some lessons. Uh, but I mean, it's uh, picked it up for the first time. I mean, yeah, a couple so, but of I mean, was like, eh, let's give it a I shot. I mean, I do respect. I mean, anything's possible. But I mean, that's, that's uh, you know often a, a tie-in as well. So th- there we have that. So booms and strange things in the sky. Uh, who knows? All right, now we have um, some from Facebook. Uh, Brittany from Rentham, Massachusetts. Ah, uh, yes. So Brittany writes to us. Uh, Mothman comes up a lot on your show, but what is Mothman? Is there more than one? Why do some people have good Mothman encounters and others bad ones? Uh, also, I read your book, Behind the Paranormal 2. Uh, where would you, th- uh, where would things like upright canines and ear eaters come from? Uh, I get your point that parallel worlds can't collide, but what kind of worlds... Oh, wait, 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 why don't we start? <laughs> Sorry, a lot of questions. All right, let's take the Thank first you, Brittany. You're, you're, you're curious, and that's great. All right. So, Mothman. What is Mothman? <laughs> All right. You fellas, uh, you know you know what, as much about it as I do. Well, Mothman is, in, is uh, I guess, we'll boil it down to physical appearance, and then we'll go on from there. Yes. So Mothman has been described as, you know, a uh, bipedal creature. Um, sometimes we've heard with no neck, simply just, you know, a head that kind of goes right onto the shoulders, uh, typically, you know, has a wingspan um, like that of a moth can fly up to about 100 miles an hour, maybe, supposedly, and, um, you know, has these big red eyes that, you know, everyone can kind of see, so it gives a kind of moth-like aesthetic. But really, the first sort of appearance of Mothman was more of a a bug-like creature that was also bipedal, but looked more... Honestly, it looked more like a butterfly than a moth. I, th- I think it was just the red eyes that kind of gave people like the the idea, like ah, oh, it's a it's a moth type thing. But this, but the creature that was supposedly seen by a couple of teenagers that were terrified for their lives in West Virginia um, had a neck, you know, a very like a human human like ish head, but you know, still had the big red eyes. Um, so Mothman's often associated with a uh, with this with an event in um, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. In which, you know, uh, a bunch of paranormal phenomena were occurring in this in this flap area, including you know, uh, men in black, uh, heightened psychic phenomena, poltergeist phenomena, um, all sorts of weird stuff. But you know, really, he was kind of the star of the show because it was so weird. Everyone had experiences where they saw you know Mothman, or they'd see red eyes looking in their windows, they'd hear footsteps on their on their roofs, 
and and we've even talked to you know witnesses of this event when we were down um, in Point Pleasant, you know, a few years back for wasn't a Mothman convention. It was some paranormal. Well, we were there twice. We were there for in '03. You were but a wee lad for oh, yes. the uh, paranormal convention there with Bud Hopkins. Yes, uh, and we talked to some eyewitnesses then, and uh, and then also we were there uh, in '07. Yes, on the way to the uh Birmingham Alabama where I I spoke uh, believe it or not at the Mensa convention. Yeah, and we stopped by the Mothman Museum yeah. while we were down there, which yes. was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, um, great. So essentially Mothman there's there's debate as to what Mothman actually is. Uh there was a there were some theories thrown out that he was actually a thunderbird where the in some Native American um Traditions and mythology, they believe that there were these things called thunderbirds that were often heralds of doom, or um, you know they would they would sort of predict they would appear and then something terrible would happen, because right around the time of the Mothman sort of occurrences, there was a bridge collapse that killed what was it twenty one people? Uh, I think it was more like thirty eight. No, it was thirty eight people. Yeah. I, it, was, it was somewhere up December fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven. Yes, so right around that time, right after the bridge collapse, just all phenomena ceased. Silver Bridge, yeah. Um, so there, there, there were even stories that you know a Mothman-like creature was seen around Chernobyl mm-hmm. uh, around around the time of, of the uh, the the horrific uh, nuclear occurrences there. Um, there now, you know, Mothman's been reported in a couple other places, but now most recently in Chicago, which is still going on. Yeah. Um, and there's horrific things happen in Chicago on a daily basis. So oh, yeah, something yeah, horrific. You don't even need Mothman. Yeah, honestly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every day Jeez. something terrible happens Oh, there. man. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really, it's it, Mothman has, has been thro- thrown out as that. Um, there's also ideas that he has something to do with UFOs. But there's not not much really really known about that. There's honestly probably more anecdotal evidence pointing towards you know a herald of doom as of sorts. But really the fun the weird thing about Mothman is there's a ton of eyewitness accounts, but really not much photographic evidence or video evidence mm-hmm. or really anything else. Really, it's kind of all the phenomena that surrounds him, uh, him it surrounds it. Um, and it, I think that's that's what's what's really interesting about Mothman is just all the associated events along along with it. Mm. Whereas you know everyone focuses on that, but really all the phenomena around it is not more interesting, but always accompanied. Shane, mm. no, that was very well put. Can't ball that. No, you've covered that well, very well. I, I disagree on a few points. But go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. You go ahead and go ahead. That was I thought it was great. Well, I mean, it just it's it's generally thought that. Well, first of all, you know, there are some fundamental foundation questions we have to ask for. Right. Is that the term Mothman was invented by the media, okay? True. Uh, because it looked more like a bat. Right. But they didn't want to say Batman because this is the early 60s and the Batman the, uh, series was coming out with Adam West. and yeah, they Didn't, didn't want to get in trouble with Adam West. They didn't want to have a humongous lawsuit. Uh, plus, Batman was a copyright, was a trademark name. So they, they came up with the idea of Mothman. The I've always thought that the, the various sightings uh, and you're right the the, uh, the first sightings were of a, um, a a very muscular man-like creature with bat-like wings, and uh, but this was almost always seen in the dark, and the only consistent description from all witnesses that I've ever seen is the red eyes, okay, which led to some speculation on my part that maybe a Mothman was artificial, it could have been some sort of experiment I don't know. Uh, because it seemed to be self-luminescent, these eyes, right? Mm, yep. um, 
so there was that, and then there was a couple of other issues, like um, do we see something like this and then put the label Mothman on it because we've heard the name and it's really nothing, not the same creature or phenomenon at all. That's true. Uh, the uh, people who did not, who, who saw that it, who described it as having no neck and very moth-like appearance, were seeing it in the dark and may not have seen the neck. Just, just the people were fixated on those, those red eyes. So descriptions, I think, vary depending on the conditions, which is a common phenomenon. You know, you see anything, it's going to depend on the conditions. Uh, the the interesting part that I always found is is a little known story. Um, it was uh, really the, the the second. It's it, it's considered that the young couple, the the two couples who uh, were up at the TNT area and happened to see the Mothman. In November 1966, are considered to be the first ones who saw it, but there, there were really two reports before that in other parts of West Virginia. Uh, the the people who saw it said uh, the uh, the couple in the the ones who were supposedly the first to see it in the Point Pleasant area were in a car. It was in their headlights, and they described uh, the uh, more of a man with the bat-like wings, and one of the wings was caught like like in a guy wire. Because it was an industrial area during World War II, there was nothing there then, and uh, it seemed just as fr- afraid of them as they were of, of it, uh, which I found very interesting. And this is a very common cross-brain, uh, multiversal phenomenon where denizens of parallel worlds will find themselves at least partially in ours and be terrified of us. And of course, we think we're seeing ghosts or something or monsters, and we're terrified of them. So it's uh, not a good relationship on the r- getting off on the right foot, so to speak. So <clears throat> there's that, and then <clears throat> the um, uh, idea that uh, the Silver Bridge collapsed in 1967, and I and the no more Mothman uh, appearances. That, uh, in my research, does not seem to be the case. Uh, it did not seem to cease at that point. There were other uh, reports around that area at the time, and reports pretty much uh, all over the world of something like that. And one of the questions. Uh, asked here uh, by Brittany is is uh, are there more than one well i i think that any sort of species unless one you know kind of wanders in from somewhere or somewhere and then all of a sudden um, appears and then disappears again i mean that's possible but for any sort of uh, population uh to uh be viable there should have to be at least 500 uh, you know uh, individuals but of course we believe that these things do come and go same thing with bigfoot mm-hmm. at least in, especially in our own experience with bigfoot uh, so it's. Um, I'm sure there, there have to be more than one, whether they're in our world or another. Is another question. So those are just a few points on that. You know, I mean, just uh, I think again we put things in terms of that we can understand, and the you know we kind of have our our minds more or less around the, the the label Mothman, but what we're labeling may not necessarily be the same thing. I brought this up before on, on other shows, but I feel like I have to bring it up again. Um, back in the early nineties. I had a job in an office, and this old lady wandered in, and I, you know, she it was hot outside. I gave her, you know, drink and everything, water and everything. Sat her down, and she started telling me stories. And she said that back when she was younger, I'm, I'm assuming at least in the '60s, you know, um, she would would she was part of a. a a group of homeless gypsies that would just wander around um, from Ohio to West Virginia, you know, that area. And they would choose to stay in in wide open fields where the tree line was far, far away so they could see what she called the flying devil fox would, mm. with the red eyes would come. And they, they wanted to make sure that they had enough warning of seeing this thing come at them so they could, you know, get cover or whatever. But 
but yeah, she she told me the whole. This is before the movie came out. This is before you know internet. So I mean, uh, this is she just recalling her own experience. But what she called it was the flying devil fox. But wow. she described exactly what everyone describes yeah. the Mothman, and it was in the same area as Point Pleasant, and you know yeah. the, the whole movie. Well, there seemed to be within a hundred mile radius several incidents. Um, the very first one that I'm aware of was a bunch of people uh, grave diggers. Uh, about uh, 50 miles from Point Pleasant. I can't remember the name of the town offhand. But they uh, it was a November, early November 1966, uh, before the main events occurred. And they happened to look up, and there was a, a, this creature, and it was daylight, flew from one tree to another. And they said there was anything like it in their lives. They were freaked out, you know. And, it's even uh, probably more freaky because they're grave diggers. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> so... That was that, and then of course uh, the, the day before the um, uh, Millette uh, Scarberry incident, which are the two couples we described earlier, uh, there was uh, about eighty miles away on a farm uh, in uh, another part of West Virginia. There was a, a, a really scary incident where the, the, it was it, after dark. It was in their barn, and uh, the, the dog disappeared, and the body of the, uh, the body of a dog similar to this one was found on the road near Point Pleasant. We'll never forget you, Bandit. Bandit, right? That's right. <laughs> that was the name of the dog. And um, apparently, he met a bigger bandit than himself because uh-huh. uh, the, they, they saw it uh, in the with the red eyes, and it stood up in this dark barn. It was it was like eight feet tall, and everybody uh-huh. freaked out. So they ran into the house and. Uh, uh, the uh, there were interestingly enough electrical problems. The TV went off. Hmm. Uh, matter of fact, I believe it exploded, <laughs> and uh, you know the power went off for a while. And, and this is a very common phenomenon when you have uh, among, well, among other things, uh, multiversal experiences because you know the the cars will, and trucks will turn off. It's like an electro electromagnetic pulse. Hmm. So there, there were a lot. There's a lot to this story. And of course, as Ben mentioned, there were other phenomena going on. UFOs, Men in Black, and this all, what we would describe as a textbook flap area, you know, going on in Mothman was just the one who got most of the press. Okay. So, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't even, oh my goodness. We barely got into the question, too. Well, we we better uh, save that for next time, but we'll get into our announcements here uh, because we're running out of time. Uh, Coming this month. April 23rd at 1 p.m., we'll be back at the Town of Prospect Senior Center in Connecticut for our presentation on our weirdest cases in Connecticut over the years. It's open to the public. Information 203-758-5300 or visit townofprospect.org. And after that comes the X-Filers United 2019 Convention set for April 26th through the 28th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island. This event covers all areas of the paranormal, UFOs, ghost phenomena, cryptids, and more. Along with us, speakers will include our... For a great friend over here, Shane Searway, and uh, filmmaker Alexander Petikoff, UFO uh, researcher and experiencer Mike Stevens, uh, along with America's youngest recognized cryptid expert, Colin Schneider, uh, famous medium Gary McKinstry, uh, author Susan Brunel, UFO experiencer Tom Reed, and a number of other big names as well. It's going to be a really good time, and uh, we'll give you more details as they firm up. The website is xfilersunited.com. And events later this year will include appearances at Nashville, New Hampshire Public Library in August, uh, Book Lovers Gourmet in Webster, Massachusetts in September, uh, along with uh, the Exeter UFO Festival and the Greater New England UFO Conference as well. Okay, I, I do want to get this in because we're almost out of time, but we have a new charity we've adopted, uh, and we'll talk more about it next week, but it is um, uh, joining the other five that we have here, and it's called the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. 
Uh, yesterday, I spoke at length with the courageous lady who founded this group several years ago. Uh, she was a 9-11 responder, and uh, please uh, look look that up for us, uh, and, and we'll talk more about it next week. Ben, what's, co- what's going on next week? So next week, uh, WON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM here uh, on April 14th, uh, we're going to have retired British police officer Gary Hesseltine, and uh, he's going to be giving us an update on police experiences with UFOs, the Chinese Disclosure Initiative, and recent admissions by the Pentagon. And that's about all the time that we have That's here. it. Talk to so, you next week. So thanks for joining us on a great cosmic journey. We shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.